Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yes. Lisa Meister, my friend. My friend, long ago. Long ago. Long ago, who looked me up, and uh, she was on a journey to find if there was validation for all that you'd been through. And over many months, as you looked, you found a lot of validation and understanding. And God brought you healing. So it's been 30, probably around 30 years. Maybe longer? I have to think. I'm 60 five years old so I want to say at least 30 years that uh, you showed up at my house to ask me a couple questions it's been a while I met Danielle when I was four so it's a whole life yeah. a whole life I met Justa when she was a newborn beautiful beautiful still beautiful <laughs> I don't think I changed diapers I had to draw a line somewhere. <laughs> I have my phone, so I know what time it is. I will not take you over, I promise. But we have an important story. I'm sorry to bring you this story. But somebody has to bring stories. And God is right with us today. And he will hold you, and he will comfort you. And I really appreciate this church. And I really appreciate you, Danielle. My heart is always with you. You are a champion you are a hero, and I love you. Many, many, many years ago, God sent Joshua and the children of Israel into the promised land. And when he did that, he told them to clean out all the Canaanites that went before them. And the reason that they did that was because the Canaanites were involved in idolatry and the worship of other gods. Now, a lot of people think that the worship of other gods means they built these statues and they bow down to them, and what's the big deal? But this worship involved Baal, Asherah, Moloch, and a lot of other names of a lot of other gods, but they are all pretty much the same. And in Deuteronomy 12, 29 through 31, it says... When Yahweh, your God, cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself. When God says take heed, we've got to really listen, because he's got something really important to say. That you are not ensnared, another big word, like, uh-oh, let's pay attention, to follow them after they're destroyed from before you, that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? I will also go and do likewise. You shall not worship Yahweh your God in that way, for every abomination 
to Yahweh, which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. So the Canaanites, they were not just bowing down. That's, that's not idol worship. So let's just throw that one off. A lot of people today say, well, you know, looking at your phone is an idol. Not. That's a distraction. We do a lot of distractions. That's not idol worship. And it's saying that do not even inquire. So burning their sons and their daughters wasn't even the worst of what they were doing. There's something even more. So God was saying, we're going to get rid of all of them because I don't want you to even know what they're doing. So if we get rid of them, you're not going to know, and therefore it's not going to ensnare you because God knows that what this knowledge is is going to entrap you, and then you're going to go after it yourself. So I want you to go and get rid of all of them. Because God loved the children of Israel. He wanted to protect them from that evil. God loves us so much. In Joshua 10, they encounter the Ammonites. Ammonites were particularly evil. Horrifically evil. So evil that God destroyed more of them with hailstones in Joshua 10 than um, Joshua had to destroy with the sword. Take that in for a minute. Like, wow. So then we get into the kings, and we come to King Manasseh. He was bad, like really bad. And he even named his son Ammon, and we come back to the Ammonites again. Not good. Second Chronicles 33.6 says, And he caused his children to pass through the fire. Okay, so... In the valley of the son of Hinnom. Now, this was a place right outside the walls of Jerusalem because they didn't get rid of all of the Canaanites, right? We know they didn't do that. Therefore, they got ensnared by all the things that they weren't supposed to be ensnared by, and they went after it. So they built this valley of the son of Hinnom. And the kings went there. So King Manasseh went, put his kids through the fire. Also, he observed times, used enchantments, used witchcraft, dealt with familiar spirits and with wizards, and he brought much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He did it all. Second Kings 21.9, but they paid no attention, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom Yahweh had destroyed before the children of Israel. So not only were they doing the evil, but they became even more evil than the Canaanites than were before them. 2 Kings 21.11, And because Manasseh, king of Judah, had done these abominations and had done wickedly above all that the Amorites did, which were before him, and had made Judah also to sin with idols, therefore thus says the Yahweh, God of Israel, Behold, I'm bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever e hears of it, both of his ears shall tingle. Remember that. Both of his ears shall tingle. And now we get to Jeremiah, great prophet. All of Jeremiah is talking about idolatry. And again, when we're talking about idolatry, we're talking about passing the kids through the fire and all of the other evil things that God didn't want Israel to ever hear about in the first place. 
So he sends in Jeremiah 19, Jeremiah into the valley of the son of Hinnom, where the kings were going to do all this evil stuff, to put his feet there to call in judgment. I love that. I love that that's where he told him to go to call this judgment in. Verse 3. Behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle. So we're going right back to Manasseh. Because the evil of Manasseh, we've got Jeremiah calling in the judgment. Now Jeremiah was really good at calling in judgment. He's like, hey, would you please stop this idolatry? Would you please just do what God says? Just repent. And they're like, okay, let's throw him in a well. So there goes Jeremiah in the well. And then he gets out, and God's like, okay, go tell him again. He's like, Lord, they're just going to throw me in a well. He goes, nope, go tell him again. So he's like, stop the idolatry. Quit doing this, and, or God's going to judge you. Just repent. Just do things God's way, and there they go throw him in a well again. Over and over and over again. It's fascinating. Fascinating read. Verse 4, back in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and they filled the place with the blood of the innocents. In verse 5, they also built the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command nor speak, nor did it come into my mind. And I love this. God, who is all-knowing, it did not even come into his mind that man could become that wicked. That fascinates me. Some people say, well, God allowed it. No, that never even came into his mind. Not even his mind. In verse 6, this place shall no more be called Tophet. Now remember Tophet. Or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And I love that God doesn't play names and he doesn't nice things up, but he calls things exactly what they are. A friend of mine just sent me, he went to Israel, and he was the, on the way to Golgotha, where Jesus walked. You can see the valley of the son of Hinnom on the way to Golgotha. What Jesus paid for, that curse that he broke, was part of SRA. He broke the curse. That's all curse. That's all junk. He broke that. Beautiful. That's beautiful. So because of the wickedness of Manasseh, what he led Israel into, and all the kings, and they're going to the valley of the son of Hinnom, and all the wickedness that they're doing, Jesus broke all that. Love it. Just a little aside for you. Ephesians 5, 12 through 13, For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Now, if we're talking about the things that are done in secret, we're talking about SRA. That's what's hidden. Sorry? SRA means what? I'm oh, sorry. SRA, thank you, Patrick, means satanic ritual abuse. I'm very used to this. That's why we need Patrick in everybody's life. Everybody needs a Patrick. <laughs> but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. God is an exposer. And we are in a day right now where God's exposing SRA. So, we're in the back, back where we started, 
in Deuteronomy, God's like, let's just keep it hidden. I don't want you to know where it, what this is because I don't want you to follow it. Now he's saying, we're just going to expose it because it's never stopped. Time to expose it because it keeps on going. And then we come to Solomon in Ecclesiastes. He says, there's nothing new under the sun because the devil never stops. He keeps going. He keeps making a hook. He ensnares people. He keeps pulling them into it. But King Solomon did it too. In 1 Kings 11, it tells us that Solomon built Tophet in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And those are the groves. And that's where they went to do the sacrificing. Horrific. Now, what exactly is satanic ritual abuse? That in the rituals themselves, they're calling demons into the children, and the demons go into the kids. And then they have sex with these children, and it supercharges the demonic into the adults. And it does. And then they pass the kids through the fire, there's cannibalism, there's all sorts of horrendous, horrible things that you don't want to hear about. And it works. Solomon went into all of this stuff, because, you know, with his wisdom, he wanted to follow all this knowledge, and he got himself into a mess. And all the kings got themselves into messes, and there's power. The, de the demonic gives power, and that's why people want it. He gives money. He gives positions. He, they make all sorts of connections, and it snares people. That's why our kids are going into witchcraft and they're going into new age and the crystals and the Ouija boards and the, you know, all the new age things because the, the devil will manifest stuff and show them all this cool things or, or beings will show up and start talking to them and giving them all this wisdom and their, their ears tingle and they're like, ooh, this is exciting. It's terrifying, but it's real. It's real. And a lot of people want to say, well, that died out back then. That's not going on today. But, but it does because when Jesus died, then the devil started twisting that too. And so then they added in, well, we can get kids to the point of death and then bring them back. And then you get the mocking of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then they add in communion with cannibalism and all sorts of nasty stuff. I mean, it's just horrific. It's horrific. So my story comes in, and, I, and I, it's important to tell the story because the church has been silent. The church has been silent on this, and survivors have tried to come into the church and say, would you please help me? And the churches have been saying, well, you're lying, or you're just possessed, or you know, not, we, we don't allow that in this church. You need to go find someplace else, or this is too much. Too much, you need to go elsewhere. Or I, I had one church, they're like, you, you know, told someone, I said, a survivor's going to come, and she's going to disclose to you, and you don't need to hear her story, but you need to tell her that you believe her, and you need to pray with her. And they said, well, you just need to keep this between you and God. She just ran away. And so they're not in the churches. And, and almost never hear pastors speak on it. It's not taught biblically. We, you know, they're like, well, where's SRA in the Bible? I don't see it. You know, idolatry is just people bow down to statues. I don't see why God has a problem with that. He's a jealous God. 
Why, you know, what's, what's his big deal? We, we need to hear about it. We, we need to learn what it is so that when the survivors come in, they're, they're met with compassion. And, and, and they're not. I mean, the ostracism of survivors is horrific. I mean, it, the stories that you hear from survivors should never happen in a church, ever. And, and of all traumas, I mean, you hear trauma survivors, and they're like, well, have you forgiven? Have you, have you forgiven? I mean, if you're still having trouble, you know, oh, you were raped, have you forgiven them? You know, and, and specifically for males, well, have you forgiven them? You know, obviously, you know, we, I mean, especially men, they don't have any soft space to land, ever, ever. It's horrific, horrific. So the importance of telling my story isn't to shock you and to make you uncomfortable, but for the churches to start having a capacity to hear. And so that when a survivor comes, they're like, I've heard this before. Okay, I'm ready for this. And then we can hear and we have a place to go. We have a beginning. And we may not know where to go with it, but we can have compassion and we can start to pray. And really, we can just like, okay, I can come to the Lord with you. Let's go to the Lord together. And, and he'll make a way. He'll show us where to go. Because God, God knows what it is. He's not surprised. So there's two things that I knew growing up. That my family was perfect and that there was something very wrong with me. And I want to walk you through my confusion. My, pa my family looked perfect on the outside. I mean, Danielle will tell you, we looked perfect. Beyond perfect. Beyond perfect, thank you. I had a stay-at-home mom. My dad was a pharmacist and a business owner. We had a church-going family, and we were highly controlled kids. I mean, our behavior was perfect. I never got in trouble. I was the only kid in my class to never miss recess, ever. I had one teacher, his life goal was to get me to lose recess for some reason. I didn't. I mean, he really tried hard. <laughs> Poor guy. I think I kept him awake at night. You know? <laughs> and, but on the inside, my dad was cruel and dominant. I mean, I was, the garage door would go up at night, and I was just, uh, it took me years. Patrick had come home at night, and I'd clench, and I'm like, why do I clench? And I'm like, oh, yeah, because that's the way it was when my dad would come home. It took me a long time to learn not to do that. Our house revolved around his desires and emotions, and my mom was distant, and she was just always sick. The expectations of perfection were, like, up here. They were just unattainable. You just could never quite get there. So I excelled at everything I did, because you had to. Sports, academics, work. I mean, it was ridiculous, but it was never good enough. All conference shortstop at a real school, you, you know, you wouldn't have made the team. Valedictorian, you're just a big fish in a small pond. Got into University of Michigan, and it's like, well, you didn't get a real degree. You know, it just never ended. In my emotional state, Again, well, you know, I just felt so sorry for everybody that wasn't in my family because it just broke. I was broken inside. So I just lined up with, yeah, we are perfect. You know, like an idiot. It's like, yes, we are perfect. Yes, that's mind control. 
and I had blinking ticks in fifth grade. I just couldn't stop blinking because like you, your mind will click in, but your body is going, uh-uh, there's something really bad wrong here. And I could feel it's really bad wrong, but I would like, what is wrong? What is wrong with me? And like no information would come up. It's just like, it, it's like some, like I remember once in JV basketball and I was gonna tell the coach and I took her to the locker room and I was angry and she's like, Lisa, what is it? And I'm like, and I was gonna tell her and nothing came. I was like really gonna tell her and nothing came and I'm like, and then she, she, she just started screaming at me. You know, but I was like, it was just like, it was right, it was like right on the cusp of coming up. You know, like there was just those times. It's crazy. And I was just begging God all the time, just let me die. And one time my dad came to me and he's like, I know you're begging God to let you die. I'm like, how did he know that? You know, just so many weird, weird things. And I had recurring nightmares of helplessness. Just also, but they would, the exact same nightmare all the time all the time like one was falling you know always falling but I'd hit the ground and I'd wake up bouncing in my bed just horrific so I got to college and I got into a Christian group and I, I, I made a friend and she was from an atheist family she got saved when she got to college and her dad was abusive like just physically abusive horrific things that happened to her and we would have these four-hour lunches until one of us was late for class, would have to run off. And we were discussing family systems. And she would talk about how her family worked, and i talk about my family worked. And remember, I had the perfect Christian family. Felt sorry for everybody who wasn't in my family. But our family systems were exactly the same, and I just couldn't figure it out. And it took me four years to move from perfect family to maybe my family wasn't perfect. And poor Patrick was, came into the picture, and he would say back to me, you know, maybe your family's not perfect. I'm like, yes, they are. Yes, they are. You know, poor, you know, poor Patrick. And it's like, it just couldn't figure it out. And then he was coming into the craziness of things. He was starting to see it. And, you know, we were trying to traverse it together, and it was crazy. I mean, it was, it was just pure craziness is what it was. So we got married, we started having kids, and by the time I was 29, we, we got to the pivotal place. We had three kids by then, five, three, and one, and we had this meeting, my parents, well, dinner, and it didn't happen often because they lived far away. And, and basically, my dad had built a tent and let my five-year-old daughter in, didn't let my three-year-old son in, so he's crying, my, you know, and upset, and that's all that happened there. And then at dinner, we had cake and icing and my daughter was eating all the icing off and Patrick says you need to eat some of the cake too so she's like wigging out so my dad takes a huge scoop of icing and puts it in her mouth while he's glaring at Patrick bucking his authority and it, that's all it was it's all it was so they went home and I had this something angst inside of me something's wrong something is wrong and so I got my kids to bed, and I took my anger out on the floor. I'm like trying to figure it out. I'm trying to figure it out. There's something wrong. My daughter's in trouble. My daughter's in danger, but I didn't know what it was. Again, there's information, and I need to access it now. All these years, I've been pushing it down and pushing it down. 
but now I have to have it because my daughter's in danger. So now I need this information, but I don't know what it is. So I'm just scrubbing away. My, my floors are sparkling. I'm scrubbing away. And Patrick, he's so, he's so sweet. He comes and he sits down. He's watching me for a while, I'm scrubbing. He's like, so what's going on? I'm like, he's butting up to her. He's butting up to her. He's like, okay, who's butting up to whom? And I'm like, dad, he's butting up to Jessica. He's like, okay, what would he do? So I just, I, got, I don't know. I don't know. And if he'd been there, I'd grab him by the shirt and would have been shaking him, but don't let him. You can't let him. He's like, I won't. I promise. I won't. Whatever it is, <laughs> whatever it is, I won't let him. It, but just the, ugh, just, I need that information. I don't know what it is, but I need that information. And so that started these nightmares of groups of men raping me every night. And they went on for months. And a couple weeks later, flashbacks of sexual abuse by my dad came up. Shocking. I didn't know I was a sexual abuse survivor. No idea. Like, I would never have said that. I had the perfect Christian family. Perfect Christian family. So, like, there was no anything in our house that would say anything than that. I mean, we had some crazy conversations with my dad. Like, one of the last conversations with my dad had said, he said God wasn't good. I'm like, wow. how do you say, it? how would a Christian say, it? what's the matter with you? You know, like we had some weird conversations like that, but I couldn't figure it out because I had a perfect Christian family. But now I'm starting to go, oh, wait a minute. So we started going through, didn't know what repression was, didn't know any of that stuff. And so we started riding the waves of all of this. And by that summer, I'm like, Patrick, I think I'm going crazy and I'm not fighting it anymore. He's like, okay, now it's time to get some help. So we went to an outpatient clinic and I found a godly psychiatrist and he said, Lisa, people who are going crazy do not know that they are going crazy. I'm like, this is good news. <laughs> okay. So we went home with that, kept riding the waves, but I was getting worse. And I'm like, this makes no sense. I should not be getting worse. And then about nine months after the first flashbacks, this was 1999, flashes of rituals started coming up. So... Um, Candles, bonfires, blood everywhere, chanting, grim reaper type robes with like hoods over people, you can't see their faces, dead people, people in like graves in the ground. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm seeing. I, like, I, I, I'm not a horror show watcher. I have no idea what this is, what is this? Patrick thought he'd heard something about ritual abuse. Maybe this is what we're looking at. Thank God he was, I mean, it took me a while, like, how do I tell Patrick this? Do I tell Patrick this? You know, like, that was a huge trust thing. Like, I think he's going to either think I'm crazy, which I probably am now, probably. I'm sure the doctor was wrong in this one. But, like, he promised me he would never divorce me. That was a promise we'd made to each other when we got married. But, like probably won't want anything to do with me anymore, and that, you know, he certainly didn't do that, which I appreciate, but like, 
I, I don't know what this is. And there's no Google back then. You couldn't Google it. So we went back to this godly psychiatrist, started telling him what I was seeing. I'm like, I don't know what this is. And he goes, oh, this is satanic ritual abuse. And I already knew you were a survivor. Hello, what are you talking? You've, you've got to be kidding me. What are you talking about? And he said, Lisa, the severity of abuse that your dad did in the home was in the 90-something percentile, and it does not happen unless there's satanic ritual abuse involved. What do you do with that? What do you do when someone says that to you? It's like, I don't want to be a, a ritual abuse survivor. I've never heard, you know, I've never even heard of this. I don't want to be a ritual abuse survivor. Can, you know, let's just pick something else. You know, can we, you know? Flip the page, get your book out of diagnoses and like, let's try bipolar or something. <laughs> so I just, and still to this day, I try it with the Lord. Can we please switch my testimony to one that's a little more acceptable? Because people still don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. You know, it's like, and still sometimes I give my testimony, you're someone here, it's like, okay, it's your turn to give your testimony. I'm like, I really don't want to because you guys don't know what's coming. Like I did one the other day on Zoom. It was a Zoom call with all these people. And they're like, it's your turn to give your testimony. I'm like, oh, great. And they're like, no, this is great. You give your testimony and everybody's going to email your inbox and just encourage you. I'm like, yeah, right. Okay. So I started giving my testimony. And everybody's camera just started going off. No, nobody emailed me. There was no inbox. You know, I mean, it was just crickets. And I'm like, yep. Because that's how it goes. Because nobody's heard of this. It's still like out there. It's craziness. So it's, it's just hard. I didn't want it. So it's like, okay, how do I validate? It's like, Patrick, we're going to validate this because I don't, I don't, be I don't believe it. I don't want to believe it. How do you believe it? What do we do? So I'm like, okay, we're going to come back up here. We're going to go to northern Michigan, and we're going to validate it. And he's like, okay. So we threw all the kids in the car, my mother-in-law, God bless her. And we came up here. We get up here, and it's like, oh, shoot, I forgot. How do you do it? You can't just go around and say, we're taking a, you know, like a survey. Do you remember my family? Do you know if they were involved in satanic ritual abuse? What's your opinion on that? You know, you just don't go up to anybody. It's like, rats, I forgot about that part. So I'm like, Lord, who do you talk to? Who do you ask and how do you ask? Danielle comes to mind. It's like, good, okay. Because, I mean, I've known her since I was four. She worked for my dad off and on through the years. She, you know, we went to your dad's church a few times and, you know, we know the family. And so we came in, found her, changed the name. Took a while. They call you up, and you say, come on over. Thank God. Okay, step one. Got through there. So we take the kids who've been in the car forever. They were crazy, like five, well, I think they were about six, four, and two by then. And they were bouncing off the walls. We get in there. I mean, they were literally bouncing off the walls. I mean, they were making a mess and breaking things in her house. And she's just like, you know, this is great. And I'm like, this is a nightmare. And she goes, no, Lisa, this is wonderful. Your kids are normal. And I'm like, yeah, 
yeah, obviously they are. You know, another one swings by the chandelier. And she's like, she goes, Lisa, you don't understand. When you would come, you would sit on the couch at this age and not move a muscle and just your eyes would move. And then your dad would ask you something and your head would slap, you know, go over to him, answer the question, and then you would go back because you were so controlled. And I'm like, okay, now we're getting to some validation. You know, and she goes, you were always perfect. Your clothes were perfect. You know, and, and your, your manners were perfect. What you said was perfect. And I remember that. Before we went anywhere, we were told what to say, what not to say, how to act, how not to act. I mean, we didn't go many places. Like I see these towns around here, we didn't go anywhere. We were in our home all the time. We didn't meet people hardly ever. I mean, we were self-contained. We didn't get newspapers. We didn't know what was going on in the area ever. We didn't watch area news. I mean, we were very controlled. So you know, we were able to get information. We were able to find, you know, my parents' testimony was they were looking for truth and they were in the New Age movement and then they found the Lord. That was their testimony. So we found that they were in the um, spiritualist camp in Bayshore and there was a witch involved. Like, oh, now we're getting some information. So we found her ex-husband. We went to his house. <laughs> he was a customer of my dad's. And his new wife was an ex-customer of my dad's, who I recognized. I'm like, wow, so she let us in her house. I'm like, I need to talk to your husband. She's like, sure, come on in. So I told him who I was. He immediately looked at Patrick waiting for him to, like he was going to come beat him up. And I'm like, now we're getting some validation. And then I'm like, I was a child. Your wife was part of the cult my parents were in. They ritually abused kids, of whom I was one. And then he started falling all over himself. Oh, I mean, I hardly ever went, no, there's never any kids involved, no. He's, I don't know your dad, I don't know his pharmacy, you know. He didn't know anything, and he, his wife jumps in. Oh, you know, you know the family, you know the dad, you know the pharmacies where the subway is two blocks down the street. I don't know any subway. And she goes, well, you know the pharmacy? And she goes, you got the bookmark in the book he's reading right now. He's like, I don't know any pharmacy. And she brings the bookmark in, slaps it right down in front of him. Well-soiled bookmark. He stares at it. I don't know any pharmacy. I'm like, that's all I needed to hear. Thank you. Now we go. And we got a lot of other validation in a lot of different ways. But it's, it's time to accept that I am a survivor. So we went home and jumped into about 20 years of healing. Flashbacks, triggers, panic attacks, anxiety, healing the body. I mean, my body was just so whacked. My daughter recently went to the doctor, and you have to go through your mom and dad's medical history. And so she was just, and I only gave her a partial list because I can't even come up with all of them. So it's like, ah, that's enough, just give that. And so she was going through it, and the doctor's like, okay, and what's your mom's date of death? And I'm like, ooh, that's just nasty. But like it, the, the rituals are so torturous. They're so, they've got such a heavy toll on the body that survivors, they just go through so much. And, and it's a lot of inner turmoil. Like, like one of the lobes of my lungs had scarred shut. Or one of my um, sinuses had scarred shut. I mean, they just, it's horrific what they do. 
And it's amazing what it does to your organs. And in rituals, I want you to understand that you're seeing what, where the devil has all the power. And you've got all these adults that are willing to do anything the devil tells them to do. And there's a lot of people that say, oh, they don't know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. And they are lining up with it. They are wanting to do what the devil wants them to do, and they are all in. They do not want God. They don't want God. It's hard to understand, but they don't want God. If you look through Proverbs, there's a difference between sinners and the evil and the wicked. Sinners can still come to God. The evil and the wicked have passed some kind of point, and God calls them chaff in the wind. God's not even going after them anymore. Now, we don't know who they are. There's probably some people in those rituals that are still sinners, can still be found. I don't know who they are. God knows. God's the one that sorts all that stuff out. Life and healing are hard. They're really hard. Trauma is hard. No matter what trauma you're coming out of, healing is hard. Healing is hard. But God is a God that's full of compassion and tender mercies. And he's good. He is good. Isaiah 61, 2 and 3. To comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion. I like this. God comforts us. He doesn't say, okay, this is the 83rd time you've cried about this. It's time for you to be over it. <laughs> I've cried more than 83 times. I've cried for 20 years. And he never says, you're, you're done, that's it. And it's some people misapply Philippians 3.13, where Paul says, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching for what is, behind, what is ahead. Because Paul was going through his pedigree of being a Pharisee. He was impressive. Paul had it going on. And if anybody could have achieved perfection in this world, it would have been Paul. I mean, he, was, he had it going on. But people misapply that and say it's trauma and tell you, just get over it. And I tried applying that to trauma. I tried, I tried hard. Just, man, I tried hard. And I beat myself up with that scripture for 20 years. I'm like, Lisa, just reach for what's ahead. Don't think about it, Lisa. Lisa, you are an idiot. Lisa, what's the matter with you? And if anybody could have applied this scripture to trauma, it would have been me because I was worshiping, I was praying, I was in the throne room, I was in the Bible, and I couldn't just get over it. I really did. I, I really tried, Danielle. I promise you. But I just, I couldn't. It doesn't work that way. So he, God comforts. I find a lot, it took me 20 years to figure that scripture out. I'm slow, but I, I finally got it. He comforts. He comforts when we allow him. It took me a while. And he gives beauty for ashes, oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, and that's an exchange that goes on. 
It's beautiful. I found this on worship. It's called Beauty for Ashes. And I'd put this on praise and worship, and I would w clean my house, just singing it over and over and over, meditating on it. And it's like, this is truth. This is truth. I don't know how this is going to go. I don't see it, but God's got this. Because, like, healing was just impossibility. God had it. Isaiah 43, 19. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now, healing was a brick wall. I just, there's no way through it. And like, this is impossible. And I would go to my counselors and like, I would show them my journal because I couldn't even speak about these flashbacks. They were just horrific. I would write them in pencil because they were too scary to write in pen. I mean, it just terrified me, so I used pencil. And they would look at it and they would just stare at me and I'd stare at them and they're like, I don't know what to do. I'm like, I don't know what to do. And then pastors... You know, like I went to a pastor and I'm like, I think I killed a man. I'm really sorry. And he looked at me. He's like, whoa, this is serious. And he's like, I'm sorry. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, I don't know what to do. You know, like, what do you do? Nobody knows what to do. So there's these brick walls. But God said, if he could make a roadway in the wilderness where there's no road, and he can get rivers out of a desert where there's no water, he can certainly get rid of a brick wall in front of me for healing, and he did. That's what he does. That's our God. That's big. I don't know how he does it. I mean, he opened the Red Sea. Nobody's figured that one out yet. Kind of cool. And then we get to Abraham. I love Abraham. He was like 70 years old, and God's like, I'm going to give you a child a promise. And Abraham says, hey, that's wonderful. Instead of going, <laughs> you missed that boat. And his wife's like way past childbearing age. He's like, okay, this is a good idea. I'm, I'm all in. And then he waits about 30 years before it happens. So we get to Romans 4, 18, which says, against hope, believed in hope that beautiful because survivors of all abuse were like the commodity of hope is almost an impossibility like we don't have hope they, they strip hope away from us it's really hard to have it but against hope believed in hope so it doesn't matter we just hold on to hope God said it we hold on to it, it, it it's in the bank so we find it in the scriptures, a promise, and it's for me. And if it's in the word, I know I've got it. It's beautiful. And in verse 20, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. He staggered not. Like, think about that. And being fully persuaded, fully persuaded, he... Sorry, he gave glory to God that what he had promised he was able to perform. Beautiful. I love Abraham. 
And that's what we do. We find the promises of God. There's so many promises that he will heal us. He will deliver us. He'll set us free. He'll bring us to peace and joy in the land, the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And all of those beautiful songs that you had today, it's just you be crying out for God. Lord, do you see me? Lord, do you hear me? Lord, I'm crying out to you. And he's there. He's hearing us. He said it, will he not do it? We have the promises, so we've got the healing. Psalm 37, 25, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or seen his descendants begging for bread. I have never seen anybody who's gone after the Lord, and I'm saying going after the Lord, not just sitting around scrolling on my phone, because that's checked out. I'm saying going after the Lord, being in the throne room, talking to our God, desiring him like we talked about in the songs. Lord, I want you. Lord, I need you. Oh, God, I need you. Right? That heart. Never forsaken. I've never heard of it. God doesn't forsake us. Ever, ever. Truth. And now the John 10.10 line. We got to know this for healing. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Bad. That's anything I've seen in rituals. It's the character of the devil, and it is bad. But I, Jesus, have come to give you life and give you more abundantly. And he does. It's all the healing, all the redemption, all the good stuff. He even, God even sent Jesus to take all the sin so we don't get in trouble. Even for the things we deserve to get in trouble for, he doesn't want us to get in trouble for that. I think that's pretty cool. Now, anything bad in your life is coming from the devil. Unless you're making bad decisions, then you got to pay for that. But the bad stuff's coming from the devil. Good stuff's coming from God. That's the John 10.10 line. There's no mistaking it. Ever. Clear. We keep that clear. Jeremiah 17, 7, blessed is the person who trusts Yahweh on this side of the line. So we got the clearest character. If you don't know the character of God, go look into all his names. Jehovah Rapha, God my healer. Jehovah Jireh, God my provider. Go into all those. You'll find his character. You'll see you can trust him. Great study. Powerful. Yahweh will be his confidence. You trust in God, he will be your confidence. Beautiful. If you are an SRA survivor, Jeremiah 8.19 talks about the cry of the daughter of my people. In 21, for the brokenness of the daughter of my people, I am broken. Then it said, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people been restored? He is talking about satanic ritual abuse continues to go on, right? This is all of Jeremiah. Keeps going on, keeps going on. Would you please stop it? Would you please have righteousness? Would you please follow after me? But yet they kept doing it. God's saying, the cry of this has come up to the throne and I have heard you. I'm hearing it. And survivors are saying, Lord, are you hearing me? Lord, I don't feel heard. And he's saying, yes, I'm hearing you. I hear you. I hear you. It's beautiful. 
God is on it. He's on the throne, and he is on this. It's beautiful. But the church has been silent, and so survivors don't feel heard. So how many survivors are there out there? Cult Awareness Network estimates about 2% of the U.S. population are ritual abuse survivors. About 6.64 million, I think there's way more, but let's say that's accurate. So that would be two out of 100, one out of 50. Now Patrick did his professor gymnastics today, in, or yesterday in probability, which was beautiful. So if you have a church, and he says the words that of groups that have the same probability, which basically means we can't assume a church would have more survivors, or a church has less survivors, but it would have the same group of 200 as anywhere in society. Then your church would have a 98% chance of having at least one survivor. You would have a 91% chance of having two survivors. So they're sitting in the churches. They're sitting in the schools. They're passing you on the streets. They're marrying into your families. But also, then you gotta consider the abusers are out there, the cult active people, and they're specifically targeting the churches. They're specifically targeting the schools. They're specifically going into where they can get at the kids. That's staggering, that's scary. And that's going on. Survivors go for healing in two ways. They get fast, they think that, number one, they can validate their memories by getting more and more information about the occult or about Satanism, and they go after it. And many ministries out there try to heal them by trying to reverse the information. So, like, they'll come up with prayers and ministries where they're having them repeat words. And, like, if they get triggered by saying these words, then we know that this is the group that they were abused by. Or if we have these renunciation prayers, you know, if they start vomiting or if they start manifesting or it's going crazy, oh, then we know that this is what it was, and then we'll slap the name of Jesus, I renounce all this stuff in Jesus' name, and that'll get rid of it. But I don't see that as helping because the majority of survivors are not helped by that. But really what we're saying is you need the Bible plus all this stuff. I see that the Bible in and out of itself is sufficient for healing. Jesus himself is sufficient for healing. He's enough. What he did for us is enough. Jesus is always enough. Romans 8.35, and we're going back now to all trauma, because no matter what your story is, Jesus is the redemption. Don't give up. He's got healing for you. No matter who you are, no matter what you're believing for, whether it's trauma, whether it's healing for physical conditions, whether it's provision, whatever it is that you're going for, Jesus is enough. He's got it for you. Romans 8.35, who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or peril, or sword Nay, and all these things were more than conquerors through him that loved us. No matter what 
happens to us or what we go through, what the situations are, nothing is going to separate us from the love of God. Nothing, no matter what, is going to separate us from the love of God. Because that's what it's all there for. Devil's trying to get us mad at God and want nothing to do with him. That's the purpose of all of it. Now, people go through this stuff, and they're like, God, how dare you? They get mad at God. But remember, God's the good guy. He's the one that's on your side. He's the one who loves you, and he's there to comfort you and to help you, to heal you, deliver you, set you free. You've got the wrong guy. Don't turn on him. The anger needs to go at the bad guy. Devil, how dare you put on your armor and you start fighting him with everything you got and you take back everything God wants you to have. That's who gets your anger. If you've been angry at God, then you need to repent. Tell him you're sorry. Sorry, God, I had the wrong guy. And then you curl up on the lap of your Abba Father who loves you tenderly and get as close to him as you can get because that's where your healing is. Romans 8, 37 through 39, for I am persuaded, determined that neither death nor life, angels or principalities, now we're going to start talking about fallen angels, principalities nor powers, so we're talking demonic stuff, things present nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's not a demonic force or spirit or person that's going to separate us from the love of God. Now, there's a lot of people that are like, everybody in my life turns against me. Maybe all your family. Maybe all your friends. It's like, you too? Well, just get it in line. Everybody else has done this. It might as well be you too. Sometimes it's just like, I mean, my whole family turned against me. My whole family of origin. It's like, they were sayonara. I haven't seen any since 2006, I think. I mean, it was horrific. The entire family. I'm like, really? Nothing? And, you know, and, and, it's, and with your life... You know, it could be husbands, it could be children, and it's like an endless stream of people turning against you. But this says, I'm determined that none of this is going to separate me from the love of the Lord because it's not coming from the Lord. It's not his intent, it's not his desire. He set up our families to be a cushion for us and a support for us and a love for us. That's what was his attention all along. But the devil corrupts, kills, steals, and destroys, and he's just manipulating all this stuff and trying to turn it against us. And it hurts. It hurts. But I'm determined. I'm staying the path. I'm keeping the love of God. So what should be our response to trauma? Run to the arms of Yahweh. It's always the response. You just run into his arms The complete Jewish Bible says that when Moses went to the burning bush and he says, okay, I want you to go get Israel out of bondage. We're going to take them to the promised land. He's like, okay, well, who do I say sent me? 
Give them the name of Yahweh. And Yahweh comes with the equivalent of the divine presence of the power or the glory. So he's like, I am going to reveal myself to you and to them, and you just watch and see how I'm going to do it. And he does that with us in trauma as well. He's constantly wanting to reveal who he is to us. So he went with them in that cloud by day, the fire by night, and it was with power destroying Egypt in incredible ways, part of the Red Sea. Then he had the shield about them. He went between Israel and Pharaoh's army, a shield about them. And then it says, it asserts confidence in his strength and present and efficient aid. He presented food to them when they were hungry manna. It's like falling out of the sky, best tasting food they ever had. And it was more nutritious than anything. I mean, it made them healthier than they'd ever been. Pretty cool. And then they're thirsty, and he's like, okay, we'll give it to you out of a rock, because I can bring you what you need. He provides out of nothing, out of nothing. And then it says, the name excites emotions of love, joy, and praise. So he want to run into his arms, into the throne room, and saying, oh, Abba, here I am. And he's just waiting for us to go in there. So once we trust him, know that he's the good guy, that's where it is. That's where healing is. We go into that throne room. It's like, oh, here I am. And he's just waiting for that. So be a throne room dweller. And how do we do that? What does it look like? We start a conversation. The first thing we need is a name. So you can use Yahweh. You can use Abba. Find what's comfortable for you. God. What works? What works for you? Find it. And then talk to him about your day. Talk to him about your feelings. Talk to him about your emotions. He wants to hear from you. Learn to hear his voice because he wants to talk back to you. And this, the Bible is filled with him talking to you. Find where it's him talking. Not people interpreting or talking about their things or their whatevers. Find the places where it's God speaking, where it's Jesus speaking. It's beautiful, filled with his promises. Taking every thought captive. The less we let the free thoughts go into the negative, the better we are. It's like, uh-oh, going negative. I need to start going to God. Talk to God. Praise and worship to God. Go to sleep praying. Wake up in the middle of the night, you're praying. Just be a prayer warrior and praising. That praise and worship today, oh, that was beautiful. Thank you for that. The goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. There is goodness here. There's so much goodness here. Devil tried to steal it. He tried to take it. But God gives life and life more abundantly. He gives it back. He gives it back. It's recompense. Recompense means we go back to the beginning, but not necessarily where we started. He gives it back. It's beautiful. God rescued me. God rescues us all. He's a rescuing God. And he loves you. He loves you very much. You're important to him. He sees you. He knows you. You're not forgotten. Thank you.